Our passage this morning is in Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you, as he swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is profitable for teaching, for training, for correction, for reproof in righteousness that we might be built up. And so we turn to it each week with that great hope that it would teach us, train us, correct us, rebuke us, that we might be trained up to be people who honor the Lord. Now, most people, and I'm guessing you're among this midst, don't like going to the dentist. If you do, Maybe, this, maybe you don't understand what this is like, but most people don't like it. 
uh, because of all the stuff they're doing in there, and I've spent many hours in the dentist chair, so probably about everything that could be done has been done to me by dentists. And, and yes, I, I am in, in the number that does not enjoy going there. It doesn't matter what prize they try to give you afterward, uh, what color toothbrush, uh, not not making up for all that I had to endure in the chair, right? But but going to the dentist can be tremendously helpful. It can prevent a lot of problems. Uh, regularly going and getting your teeth cleaned and checked can prevent all sorts of worse problems and more hours in the dentist chair. See, dentists uh, attacking cavities and the rot and decay in your mouth or in your teeth. Uh, that can result uh, are, are actually, it's a, it's a good thing, right? That we need that to happen. And it might seem barbaric a little bit, maybe severe to, to take your cavities and to drill out the parts of your teeth and to fill them in with something. But it's good to keep from further decay, further problems going on inside your mouth and in your teeth. And so all the, the decay and further pain and destruction that could result can be prevented, can be helped by a little bit of drilling and a little bit of filling. Now, Deuteronomy 13 is a little bit of that kind of action, right? Deuteronomy 13 is a little bit of of God calling the people to take some severe action against those who would seek to to draw people away from the Lord. And so there's some some severe action that's going on here, but it's it's a good action meant to help and prevent further problems. The, The warnings in Deuteronomy against idolatry have been just this drumbeat that have just been beaten all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. He has repeatedly warned them to, to not go the way of the nations, to not go the way specifically of the, the people in the land that they're taking, that they're going to possess, to not go the way of idolatry. Chapter 12 uh, emphasized this. If you look back in chapter 12, verse 2 through 5, remember God is telling them and directing them to, to a place within that promised land, the place within the place where his presence would dwell, and he warns them. He says, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name and to make his inhabitants there. There you shall go. Burn, chop, like get rid of them because he knows that they're going to be an allure to his people. He, he knew that these places and, and the gods that are set up in these places could be a pull on his people, Israel. And so he warns them, you need to destroy those places, like get rid of them, chop it, chop it down, burn them so that you're not pulled in that direction. He says this, another warning in verse 29 of chapter 12, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go into dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in the land, take care that you not be ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same. He's saying, don't do that. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing is, is done by them. So God knows that their hearts are sinful and they're prone, they're inclined to be pulled away. They're they're prone to wonder, to be pulled away from the one true living God. They're they're prone to be be pulled by the the Canaanites and and their gods, seeing as they look around like, looks like the Canaanites have it 
pretty well here. Like, this is a good land. They seem to be strong and powerful. Maybe their gods are okay and worth following. And so God knows all of that's there. There's the pull of the, the amount of wealth and power and structure that the, the Canaanites have. There's the pull of their own sinful hearts. And so God warns, don't go that way. Take care that you not be ensnared. And these Canaanite uh, idol- places of idolatry and places of worship but weren't the only lure. So it's not as if he's, he's warning him, like, watch out for all those problems out there. Chapter 13 turns it around. There's something more than just these places and these people and these gods in Canaan that can pull God's people away. Look in verse 1 of chapter 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, here's a place of allurement. This, this is among, among them. One of them, perhaps even someone who who has some clout, some power, perhaps a a leader that they're looked at as someone who might be a prophet or or a dreamer. This is no outside problem. This starts among them. And if they're thinking about prophets and prophecies and dreamers and dreams, to them, they would have seen those as revelatory. In other words, this is a way that God gives some things that he wants them to do. It's why he reveals things to his people. You might think back. These audience here would have known the story of Jacob and his ladder, where he dreams, and he sees the angels ascending and descending, right? They would have known of Joseph, and now he had a few dreams. You remember Joseph's dreams, how his brothers were going to bow down to him? They would have known how Joseph interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh and how that all got played out. Those were revel. Those were dreams where God was revealing something about what he was going to do, who he is, what he's like. They would have heard passages already, like we've seen in Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6. God says, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him. How? In a vision. I speak with him in a dream. These are ways that God could communicate to his people and get his message out. And so the When we come to verse 1 of chapter 13, these are folks, these prophecies or these dreams, these dreamers and prophets are folks that could lay claim to divine authority. They're saying that what they're giving out is from the Lord. And they may even have more weight than just the claim of that. Because if you look in verse 1 and 2, it continues, they also might be able to put behind that some signs and wonders. If there's a prophet... Or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. So that's pretty compelling. At, at this point now, they, they not only have they said something that could be revelatory, that could be God communicating, now they're doing a sign and wonder, and again, it comes to pass. Like the, It's getting harder and harder not to listen and not to follow such people. I mean, a sign and a wonder that would come to pass would be compelling evidence that this person is someone to be listened to. But God gives them one more test. Look at verse 2 again. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Everything had checked out. Prophet, dreamer, they have something revealed to them. They even have a sign and wonder that actually comes to pass. Compelling evidence here. Everything is working in their favor. It seems like this is someone to listen to. Everything is checked out. 
This is someone from among us. This is not a, a Canaanite prophet or a Canaanite dreamer. One from among us. The people of God has a dream, has a sign. This must be an authoritative word. Is this from the Lord? Do we need to listen to it? Is this compelling? Do we need to obey it? But God gives him a crucial test to find out. And the crucial test is the theological test. The test of what this is actually pointing to. If a prophet or a dreamer gives a sign that comes to pass, and the conclusion is, let's go after other gods, which is the conclusion that's given here, then the alarms need to be going off. They need to be sounding immediately, and that should be the end of giving any of this this prophet or this dreamer any sort of a hearing at all. It needs to be the conclusion of anything and any influence that they would have if their conclusion is, let's go after other gods, doesn't matter the sign, doesn't matter the dream, doesn't matter what has come to pass, if that's their conclusion, this is someone not to be followed. It's interesting though, isn't it, that this prophet or dreamer has all the right credentials but one, a theological credential. That's the primary one, the primary test. And when you go to the New Testament, uh, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4, he, he applies a similar test. He says, test the spirits to see rather of the truth. It, it's crucial test for the people of God. It's the deciding test, the theological test. Because one may be an authoritative person, a prophet. You might even be within the people of God. You're a prophet from a church and have a sign or wonder that even comes to pass. I mean, that's a, that's a substantial amount of credentials there. But the test of theology needs to be there as well. We need to be asking, testing, who or what are they actually pointing to? Who or what are they turning people to? What is the actual substance of their words? Because they might have a sign and a wonder, but if the substance is, we're going after other gods, this is someone that's not to be followed, not to have influence. Is, is there prophecy or is there a dream? Is it leading people to know, love, and serve, obey the one true living God or not? What's the substance of the, what they're trying to get across, their influence? If it leads people anywhere other than following, loving, knowing, obeying the one true living God, they may have all the credentials in the world and are not to be followed. They failed the test. It's the most crucial. Think about the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a man, almost like the, the prototypical antichrist. And here's what he does. He comes and he takes up residence. He sits in the temple of God. So right place, right? This is the temple of God. You're sitting in the right place. And it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9, he comes with all power and false signs and wonders. Now, obviously, we know that it's, you know, you, he's described as the man of lawlessness. So this is not one to be followed. But all the credentials seem to be there. So why is it not to be followed? Right spot? Right signs? Like compelling evidence that this is one to be listened to? Why not? Because this is one who defies God. Taking the place where only God should be? Claiming to be God? That fails, again, the theological test. And it, it seems so obvious, right? Like, if you're going to defy God, this is not to be followed. But it's this common denominator that's listed throughout is that they are turning people away from the one true living God. 
It might pass every other test, but if it turns focus away from God, worship away from God, then it has failed the ultimate test, the test that God's people need in order to listen to their influence and follow their words. The theological test. The prophet or the dreamer says, here, let's go after other gods. No true prophet could say that. No, no dreamer that actually has a dream given by the Lord would, would guide in that direction. And so it's not to be followed. The conclusion that he gives them here is don't listen to them. And by these warnings, they're to see through the prophet with this test. And they're to see through the prophet to another test. The test that God is actually giving in and through this. As you read this in verse 3, it says, For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. I had a professor one time who came in on the day of the tests, and he came in wearing a Darth Vader mask. And it had the sounds, the, the Darth Vader breathing sounds. And he took the mask off, because I don't think you could actually speak through the mask. He took the mask off, and he said, most of you are probably looking at me like with this mask on. Like, I'm Darth Vader. The evil empire is coming to destroy you, right? Like, when you hear that sound and that, you hear the the breathing, it, it surely would probably mean your doom. And he's like, that is how we often view tests. But he says, this is not the way to view this. Not the way to view tests or exams. And he's saying, these help you fight ignorance. They, they in other words, are, are working for your good. Like, good things come of taking tests and quizzes that wouldn't come apart from that. You wouldn't study with the intensity and, and know the information the way you want to know it for a test without the test actually being there. And so it's, it's a good thing that he's giving the test, right? He's not Darth Vader. He's actually a good professor. And so we may view tests like this Darth Vader, Vader mask and working for the empire and, and trying to destroy all that's good, but tests are revealing. They help us fight ignorance. They strengthen us. And that's how God uses tests. In James chapter 1, verse 3, he says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith is producing something, something good, something we need, endurance, so that you could walk faithfully before the Lord for the long haul. For Israel, that's how they would have thought of tests. They would have known of the story of Abraham and how God gave Abraham this test. The connotation would have been something positive. Abraham, kill your only son Isaac. What? This is the covenant promise. This is, the, this is your fulfillment of what you've promised to me. They would have heard that story and of all the things that were going on and, and thinking through Abraham and all the, the, the doubts and fears he would have had. But he takes those and he obeys. Not letting the substantial evidence, wait, this is your covenant fulfillment, this is your covenant promises coming to fruition. He didn't let all of his thinking, all of his doubts, all those things weigh more heavily in his mind than what God had told him to do. Obey God. That was more substantial to him. And so he takes this test and he just walks in obedience. And, and a similar test is going on through this prophet, through this dreamer here in Deuteronomy 13. That the signs and that this is one from among you makes you think, this is one I can give my allegiance to. This is one to follow. This is one worth listening to. But God's word is really clear, isn't it? There are to be no other gods. So 
So if that's where they're turning, no matter how much substantial evidence they're bringing, no matter how compelling it is in my own thinking even, I know God's word and what it says, and he says there's no other gods before me. He calls us to full allegiance, and so what do we do? We're not to follow this one, we're not to listen to this one, and we can see it rightly as as God is testing. So verse 4 says, you shall walk after the Lord your God. Fear him and keep his commandments. Obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Has he ever said things like this before? Over and over again he say that. The the prophet or the dreamer in this scenario thinks that they're driving the whole thing. Listen to my word. Hear this thing that I've, I've seen from the Lord. Here, look at this sign. You need to follow. But behind the scenes, it's God who is sovereign. It's he is the one who is working for his end. So we can be reminded of this. If we're going through some sort of test, we can know the Lord is not only sovereign over it, but is working through it because he's ultimately the sovereign one. And so what we do in the midst of these tests, in the midst of even maybe some compelling evidence, is we do verse 4. Listen to all these verbs. I love that. Walk after the Lord your God. Fear him. Keep his commandments. Obey his voice. Serve him. Hold fast to him. That's what's clear. That's what we know for sure. This is more than enough to keep God's people busy, right? Listen to him. Keep his commandments. Hold fast to him. Your your life can be occupied with all of those things so that even if someone comes with a dream or a a prophecy, you can say, wait, I know for sure that this is what I'm going to be spending my life on. We're to be kind of like a little bit like Nehemiah on the wall. You remember, Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall for the sake of the glory of God in Israel, for the protection of the people. And they come, and they say, hey, you know what? The people of the land that are trying to destroy them and work against them say, why don't you come to a meeting, Nehemiah? And he says, you know what? I'm actually too busy to come down right now. This is the work that I know for sure that the Lord has given me to do, and so I'm going to keep doing that. Too busy to come down, I'm doing a good work here. That's what God's people are to be doing. Take verse 4. We're walking with the Lord. We're trying to fear the Lord. Walk in the fear of the Lord. We're trying to obey his commands. Like We're going through all of this. And so, man, maybe there's a, a prophet or a dreamer that's giving these things, these signs and wonders. But we know for sure that this is the work we're giving ourselves to. And we're too busy to give ourselves over to something else. There's a sign from a prophet. So come down from the wall. Only if it's consistent with the work God has already told us about. Only if it's consistent with the word that we're already supposed to be obeying. And so Moses repeats the often given command in Deuteronomy. You fear the Lord. Keep his commands. But they're also to deal with the prophet. Verse 5. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall... Purge the evil from your midst. Essentially, such a prophet or dreamer has become like the pagans in the promised land that they were to dispossess. Worshiping other gods, turning people to worship other gods. Those were the people they were to remove, to destroy, so they wouldn't be a snare to them. And essentially, one from among them has become like that. And the death penalty is called for. For two reasons, I think, that are given here. Two reasons for the death penalty, both ground in the same spot. The first is that they taught rebellion. So there's a punitive aspect to this. There's a a penalty for teaching rebellion. And then the second one he gives is that you need to purge the evil. There's a 
a purification reason, a, a protection reason. And, and both of those reasons are ground in the same thing. Why? Verse 5, she'll put him to death because this is the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery. And this is the Lord who has commanded you. And so the death penalty, I think, needs to be set in its proper place. This is one that has arisen not from the land of Canaan, but from among them, a people who God had set his affection on and redeemed, pulled out of slavery. This is a people rescued by God's grace. They're not Egypt's anymore, and the reason they're not Egypt's is because God intervened because he loved them, and he saves them. Why does he love them? Because he loves them, and because he chose them and loved them, and he he spoke to them. He chose them. He, he rescues them. He loves them and sets his affection on them. And he speaks to them. And they're amazed when he speaks to them that they don't die. And they don't die because he's gracious. He wants them to know his word. And he gives them the law. And so he lets them know what's required of them. He's not this one who, I'm going to redeem you and I hope you can figure out how to please me. Or what displeases me. Like, no, he's really, really clear. He lets them know what's required of them. He lets them know how to live in relationship with him, how to live rightly before him in the land. And the very first word that he gives to them, right, out of the 10 words, the 10 commands, what's the first word? Don't go after other gods, right? I am the Lord God. There you go. There's only one. And direct defiance of God and his law with the desire to others, for others to follow in that is blatant rebellion. And so when we put the death penalty in light of that, all that God has done for them in his loving them, redeeming them, giving them his law, even saying very first, I'm the Lord your God, no other gods before me, sets this death penalty in the right place. And it looks a little different in light of a holy and gracious redeeming God. In his work, of redemption. In his word, God has revealed himself. He hasn't hidden this, that he is a consuming fire. They've seen it. And the act against the Lord in rebellion to him, he's a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. He reveals his strong love for his people in refusing to be okay with their spiritual adultery. He couldn't possibly be loving and let them be carried away by these prophets and dreamers. And so he says, put them to death. He's purifying his people. He's protecting his people. He's watching out for his people from the deadly influence that will not just lead a few to destruction, but could lead them all to destruction. You remember chapter 11? Chapter 11, starting in verse 26. God puts before them two things. This is for the nation, blessing and curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today to go after what other gods you have not known. Like he, he could not be more clear. Blessing and curse, they're in front of you. The, the influence to turn away from the one who'd redeemed them loved them and gave them his law was a heinous crime. And God is working because he loves them to say, you need to put this one to death. But the problem is that that's not the only place of, of poor influence could come from. 
Moses addresses another scenario where more of Israel could be pulled away. Look in verse 6 of chapter 13. If your brother, the son of your mother or the son of your daughter or the wife you embrace or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other. Like, so here's what's happening. These are the closest relationships he can describe, tight bonds. And he's saying, if that happens, then, then we've got a whole nother test of loyalty, don't we? There's deep connections here because these are the strongest, most important social bonds in their society. And he's saying, if one's from that arena, that area comes and works on you, tries to influence you, you need to respond to that. This is the very context, these relationships that God designed to be tremendously formative for good. He meant and put in place for the formation of good things within his people. And yet, they're doing the opposite. And not only are the bonds close here, so you're talking about someone who you trust, who you want to walk alongside with, but the interactions are, are way more unlimited than maybe just a prophet or a dreamer. And not only are they more unlimited, but they're secret. Did you notice that? And there's a pull in secrecy and darkness that just doesn't exist that's out in the light in the open. And surely that's a kind of pressure that is exerted here too. So there's a different pressure in this scenario versus the prophet and the dreamer. Pressure that I think would be very difficult to overcome. And so Moses gets out in front of it and is saying, here's what you need to do. Think of the strain that Eli had when his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were, were horrible sons. And he's supposed to be helping things out in Israel and he doesn't address them. Why? He loves them in a certain way. And the pool to not discipline them rightly or to put them away was strong in him. Think of Samson, Delilah, the pull he has to want a cave, to go in her direction, or Solomon. And I mentioned all those. These are people, these are men in positions of power. That you don't need to be swayed. You're, you're fine. And they are all overcome. And so though this influence is from a different place, it pulls with different pressure. And it pulls in the same direction as the prophet or the dreamer. What's the direction? Let's go after other gods. There's the theological test again. And they failed. And so even though it's a close relation, the response is to be the same. And it's put very clearly. Verse 8 you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. Think of the impulse to want to do that in these situations. Instead, verse 9, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death. With stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And I think it's stated probably more fully than the prophet or the dreamer to remove maybe some more possible excuses or exceptions that you could raise given the closeness of the relationship. But essentially, what Moses is calling for is that this person to be treated 
similar to what we saw in chapter 7, verse 16. It says, you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Only there, he's not talking about one that's from among them and from even maybe their own family. He's talking about the Canaanites who've rejected God and worshipped other gods. But they're treated the same because that's the direction that this relationship has been going. And again, the death penalty is called for with two reasons, again, and they're both ground in the same thing as the two reasons above. One, that this person sought to draw you away, again, so it's punitive. And the second is given for us in verse 11. And all of Israel shall hear and fear and never again do such wickedness as this among you. It's preventative. All of Israel is going to hear about this and they're going to think, let's not go that way. Notice that the first stone comes from the, the, the close one in the relationship, the one that is being pulled and influenced by, by maybe their child. They're the ones that aren't to conceal it, but to actually give the first stone. It comes from the family. But it's not to be given alone. The community is to join in on this so that everyone sees and is warned. Can you imagine if someone else had to throw the first stone on such a close relation, and you had to be there and not only witness them throw that first stone and the anguish that would go into that, but then you had to pick up one too. It's preventative. It's a warning. Don't go that way. It'd be anguish. It would deter from further sin. And so the death penalty is severe, but it's intended to restrain and to prevent from further evil. In other words, it's for their good that they do this. Again, the death penalty is ground in who God is and what he has done, that this is the God who has redeemed them. And it makes an obvious point. Be loyal to the one true living God. Did any of your family redeem you? God redeemed you. So if they're pulling you away from the one who redeemed you, who loved you, they couldn't possibly be in the right. They never redeemed you. They haven't shown that love to you. Follow the Lord. And as strong as the relational bonds are, and as deep as the loyalty goes, loyalty to God is to be deeper. Allegiance to God is to be stronger than even these deepest earthly bonds. Doesn't Jesus say something similar? Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. It says, whoever loves father... Or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me he has to say those things and be explicit about them because there's a, a real pull and influence to love those things more than we love God but he's clear whoever does that is not worthy of me and I always thought that was strange because I think we're supposed to love other people and so what, what am I supposed to do here and Jesus is being clear that you're not to love someone less. That's never the prescription in the scripture. You cannot love your mother, father, child too much. But you can have that love disordered. Your first love, your primary love, the supreme love in your life is to be love for the Lord your God. And then all others follow. And if you have that in the right order, then you can never love anybody else too much because you're loving God primarily. And one of the ways that you love God supremely is by loving others in the same way that he has loved 
you. So he's not saying here, you know what? You guys love too much your, your families. You need to decrease that. No, he's saying you don't love me enough. I'm not supreme in your loves. And if I'm not, then everything else is out of balance. So love me more, and then everything else will fall into place. Think about Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. How should we love the Lord our God? With all of our heart. All of our soul. All of our might. We can't give our whole heart away to somebody else. It's already devoted to God. I'm wholly devoted to Him. So the strongest allegiance in anybody's life is to be the Lord. Not another relationship. Son, daughter, mother, father close relationship in any other way, the strongest allegiance, the most wholehearted devotion, and strongest and deepest loyalty is to go to the Lord. No other relationship, no matter how close it is, is to be first and primary and supreme. Think of Abraham. He got tested, and it was going to reveal his deepest loyalty. Take your son, your only son, the covenant promise the, the one who fulfills the things I've been saying to you. He came out of nowhere. You were way too old. Sarah was barren and way too old. And yet I gave him. He's going to be the one. This offspring that I promised that you're going to bless all the peoples of the earth through an offspring like him. He's going to be a blessing to the nations. And then he says, kill him. Think about the test and what's revealing. What's your deepest loyalty here, Abraham? And he was willing to sacrifice his only son in obedience to God by faith. And close relationships can reveal our deepest loyalties and our strongest loves. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son in obedience to God, and it's easy to flip those. It's easy to be willing to sacrifice obedience to God for another. Kid doesn't feel like going to church today, so we stay home, even though we know God says, don't neglect to meet together. Friend thinks it's lame to be Christian, so we're going to take it easy on the Jesus talk. Yet we know we're ambassadors, witnesses. God is not calling us today to sacrifice our sons and our daughters and our closest relationships, but it's all too easy to sacrifice obedience for those close relationships. And if we're willing to compromise obedience to God for another, no matter who it is, we need to be aware that verse 10 doesn't come true. That we are drawn away from the Lord God. God desires that we trust Him. That we love Him first. That we are fully devoted to Him. That our deepest loyalty, that our strongest allegiance isn't to anybody else on this earth, but it's to Him. That's what He wants. A people wholeheartedly given to Him. So, so far, the enticement has been a little bit on the small scale. A prophet, a dreamer who has a, just a limited amount of influence in, in the people that are around, and, and a close relationship to even speaks in secret, so that could be going on in the house. But Moses envisions a larger scale to end the chapter. Verse 12, if you hear of one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, then he's going to give what follows. It's not without good reason that Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, that bad company ruins good morals. Worthless fellows will do it. And that's what Moses envisions here, worthless fellows. 
That, that word is the same word that's used in 1 Kings chapter 21. This is when Ahab, one of the worst kings of Israel, the northern kingdom ever had, and he is married to possibly the, the, the most infamous woman in the scripture, Jezebel. So it's, it's not a good duo. Pretty bad time for Israel. And, and Ahab wants some, a vineyard that doesn't belong to him. Naboth, he wants his vineyard. And he's sad because he can't get it. And Jezebel's like, we'll get it. What do you need? Like, well, no, he said he didn't want to give it to me. Like, well, we'll take care of that. And you know what she does? She gets two worthless fellows, worthless men. And they go and they make a false charge about this person. And then they incite his stoning. And then she comes back and says, see, we got you the vineyard. It's yours. Here are more worthless fellows. And these worthless fellows are drawing people in the city away to serve other gods. Again, the, the theological test. There should be alarm bells just chiming everywhere. Let's go serve other gods. You, you failed the, the ultimate test. The, the actual, the only test that you need to pass in order for us to move any further is that test. And they failed it. And they're drawing people away. Again, they're moving in the same direction as all the others. Away from God. Away from worship to God. Away from obeying God and obeying something else. The, the scenario then is for when faithful Israel hears this going on in one of their cities. Here's of this, did you get the word? Abomination. It's a major accusation. This city is committing abominations. And so he doesn't say, hey, just take the rumor and, and destroy the city. No, it's to be diligently investigated. So if it's true, you're going to treat this city like a pagan city, like the ones that you came into the land how you treated them, you destroyed them, you, you leveled them. You're to treat this city like that. Again, I think that in here, because they're diligently investigating, there might be, and I think there is, although he doesn't say it here, a, a Rahab option for people, right? You know, Rahab hears of the work of the Lord and who he is and what he's like, and they come and spy out the land, and she knows, uh, I want to go after that God. Because we're hearing of him and our hearts are melting. So instead of like just sitting here and receiving it, I, I want to be with him. <laughs> I'm assuming they come and investigate. They're thinking through this. There's, there's a Rahab option here. All these you know, worthless fellows are, are drawing the city away. Like, I'm not with them. Take me out of here. And here's what's to happen to the city. They're to devote it to destruction. Verse 15, you shall surely put the, surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to Destruction, all who are in it and its cattle, with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil in the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. When Jacob was leaving Laban, this kind of worthless man that he was serving for so many years, Laban came after him and then was warned by God, don't go any further or I'm going to take action on you. And so they, they lift up a stack, of a heap of stones to remember, like, this is the border. I don't cross this. You don't cross this. We're good. All right. This heap of stones will remind us of that. Here there's another heap that reminds the heap of the city. And it reminds of this city's abominations and the judgment that God poured out upon this city. It's to stand as a reminder it's, this heap is all that's left because everything from the city was offered to the Lord. So this isn't a matter of conquest of a city. This isn't a matter of, of God's people taking back the land that is theirs. It's not a matter of conquest. It's not a matter of personal gain. Look at the specific instructions. Verse 17, none of the devoted things shall stick to your hand. 
that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. None of it's to stick to your hands. It's not for you. It's not about that. For Israel to not walk in the curse, but to walk in the blessing is no secret. And it's again stated here in verse 18. Do, keep, all through the book of Deuteronomy. He keeps saying this and putting this in front of them. Blessing and curse, blessing if you do. Obey, keep, curse if you do not. The abominations of the city, they threaten the blessing. They threaten that the curses will be rained down upon them and so they're to do something. They're to take action. So that the blessing and multiplication would, would continue. So that Israel's very existence would continue. And here's what this does. When they take action upon the city, this burnt offering is given to the Lord. And it turns the Lord's fierce anger away. And so these verses, the, the actions that are taken against the city, they are about sustaining the people of Israel and reminding them of the repeated theme that Deuteronomy gives them is that there's blessing and cursing in front of you. And Moses puts before them in advance, if this happens, bless and curse is still in front of you. Take the right action. This here, the action taken here is, is kind of the blessing and the cursing applied to a certain situation, to a certain city. And yet as we come to the end of chapter 13, I wonder what we're to make of the severity that we see here. I read this last night after supper to our family around the table because it makes good dinner reading. <laughs> Stonings and burnings and heaps to remind yourselves of the abominations that the Lord judged in the city. And my daughter Hallie, she's five, she said, she raised her hand as soon as I was done, said, um, that seems rude. <laughs> Good question. It does seem kind of rude. What are we to make of this? Chapter 13. It may seem rude, mean, severe, harsh. But let's also know that the nature of sin is worse. That the nature of sin is that it enslaves it condemns, it destroys. It's dangerous, and it's lethal, if unchecked. And sin never keeps to itself. Paul says that it's like leaven. A little bit will work everywhere. It's like a cavity in your mouth that it, if you don't take care of the cavity, like the decay is going to keep spreading. It's not going to just going to stop the rot in your mouth and your teeth. It's not just going to go away. It's going to keep spreading. And part of the reason that this chapter sounds severe to us is that we don't see sin and idolatry as that bad. Be honest, does it seem like something bad enough to stone someone to death? Or does it seem like God is being harsh and mean, perhaps a bit rude? And he says in verse 14 that this city, these people, they're committing abominations. Is that kind of like, well, maybe. Part of the reason we see this as so harsh and severe, perhaps, is that we don't see idolatry as that bad. It's just something we struggle with. We're just battling that. 
and we minimize it. Nobody's perfect, right? We're just human. And so we minimize, kind of explain it away so that we look at passages like this and say, man, that does seem severe. That's not how God sees it. Notice that the severe actions are punitive. There's no dodging that this is judgment from God upon sin. And that this judgment that is poured out through the people and these death penalties is, is punitive. And here's what it does. It turns away the fierce anger of God. The, the fierceness of his anger is mentioned. God is this one who is repeatedly revealed to us as this one who is this jealous God, a consuming fire. And what we've seen repeatedly, and you will see this throughout the scripture, if you give it a fair reading, is that this severity, this consuming fire, this jealousy is not out of control. It's directed at one thing, sin. And he's revealed to them what sin is. Did you catch verse 18? You need to be doing what is right in the sight of God, and they are not to be guessing about what is right in the sight of God. They know what is right in the sight of God because he has given it to them. And guess what tops the list? Idolatry. Out of the ten words, here's word number one. I'm the Lord your God. No other gods before me. Tops the list here. As this consuming fire, this holy God, he pours out his anger at idolatry and sin. And so again, part of the reason that chapter 13 may sound severe is that our view of God is so low. There's no sense of the, the awful and trembling majesty of God who is holy and turns his consuming fire against sin. And if we don't see God rightly as this holy, jealous, consuming fire God who judges sin, then we're never going to understand salvation. What are we saved from? Saved from sin and death, right? Why do we need to be saved from sin? Because God's wrath is directed at sin. At sinners. And when we get to the New Testament, it's not as if God stopped hating sin. And all of a sudden, he, he's okay with sin now. No, in the New Testament we get there, God still hates sin, and the wages of that sin is death. Because God is holy, and sin, no matter who else it's against, is primarily against God, who created this person in his image, and even revealed some things about himself to them. So he didn't stop hating sin. The wages of sin is still death. It's still just as serious. Sin is still is just as bad now, in kind of our modern day, as it was then in the Old Testament. And God hates sin just as much now as he did then. And so here's what we see that in, in the New Testament, we are children of wrath. We, just, we have God's wrath, holy, righteous wrath pointed at us. This judgment is pointed at us, and it flows from his holiness and his jealousy over his creation, and it's pointed at sin. And guess what? This is not a negative attribute at all. It shows the intensity of his love and care for his good creatures, 
And as no good dentist would leave a cavity to just decay and rot the teeth out of all of your mouth, especially if it was his own beloved child, so too God couldn't just let sin just rot things away. Here God doesn't just want his beloved leavened with the abominations of idolatry in the land or the decaying of idolatry. He warns and he judges. He's given them what is right so they know how to live in that way. They know how to live their lives before him and he warns of disobedience. And so in other words, in the land, there are no innocent victims here that are receiving the wrath of God. Has he also not shown and proven his love for them? Twice in chapter 13, it says, this is the God who redeemed you from slavery to the Egyptians. He loved them enough not to leave them to rot in their slavery for their lives. He loved them enough to make them his own, to choose them out of all the nations. Why? Not because they were great or powerful, because he chose them. Why does he choose to love them? Because he loves them. And he gives them his law so they would know, this is what I'm like, this is what I require of you, this is how to live rightly. He warns them and he says, also, I'm with you, I'm in your very midst. He gives them all of these things. He loves them enough to purify them, to protect them, and to keep them from the deadly influences of sin and idolatry that are so easily turned to in the land. Amen. And just as God didn't stop hating sin in the New Testament, so also he doesn't stop showing intense love. In fact, I think we can say that we have revealed before us his love even more intensely than they would have seen as those redeemed from Egypt. See, so strong is God's judgment upon sin, and so great is his love for sinners that he calls for the death penalty again. Only you know where this is going. Who does it land on this time? Not on people lands on Jesus. God took on flesh, and the judgment that sinners deserve landed on God himself. He took it. He crushes the Son to save from the power of sin and death, and to grant eternal life if we would look to him and repent of our sins and trust him. This is our God. If we don't trust in him, then judgment remains upon us. And we need to see that judgment as a warning and turn from it. Repent and trust in the one who would take it from you. If we do trust in Jesus, here's what we know. That the penalty for our sin, the wrath that we deserve, the judgment that we deserve has already been poured out. The cup of God's wrath has been turned over completely. Jesus drank it down all the way. It has been turned over. None remains. So blessing and curse are before us as they were Israel. When we consider the cross, blessing and curse are before us. Either that curse will fall on us, or it will have fallen already on Jesus. And if we trust in Jesus, then God would have us remember that. Not by looking at a burned heap of judgment, but in a meal of forgiveness, where we're reminded of Jesus' body that was broken, where sin fell upon him, where his blood was poured out for forgiveness for those who would come and trust in him. If you're not a believer, when we say repent and believe, if you do trust in Jesus, your judgment has been poured out, 
receive the bread, the juice, with thanksgiving in your heart that Jesus has accomplished all that you couldn't so that you could join in on all of his goodness for all eternity. Let's pray together. God, your complete story from beginning to end is shocking. I am amazed, again, that we can start out with an ancient text talking about the death penalty and stoning people to death, and we end up praising you because you're so loving and you're so kind and patient toward us. We know we deserve to be a pile of rocks But that is not our fate, and we celebrate today when we reflect on your broken body and your shed blood. We celebrate the death penalty on you, Jesus, in our place. We praise your name. You are so good to us. Thank you for your mercy. God, I pray that you would call every heart in this building to you, to your grace, to your love, to your mercy. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will work in hearts to cause us to turn away from our sin, to lay down our idolatry of ourselves and all the foolish things that we chase in this world, and that we would bow down before your cross. The heinous means of execution on the Son of God. Thank you, Jesus. And we pray also for protection. Even those of us who are forgiven for our sins and have been cleansed and do not fear judgment day because we know you've declared us righteous already in your Son, we still can be tempted and pulled away from you. And so I pray that you would protect us from teachers who would dishonor you, even using your word. Give us discernment and wisdom and protect us from spiritual food that would cause us to languish. Pray that you would even protect us from family members and friends who could make excuses for sin and make it appealing to us and pull us away from you, God, and, and we pray for protection from a culture that is eaten up with sin. Pray that we would be light in the darkness and that we would not become like the darkness, Lord. Purify our hearts and continue to make us holy. You've declared us holy at the cross. Help us to walk in that pronouncement, Jesus. Thank you for your love, God. Thank you for your forgiveness. We rejoice in you today. Amen.